That's working fine? Right, let me get the mathematics over with right away. You can tell how needy a preacher it is, how needy a preacher is by how many people have to pray over him before the sermon starts. It's a direct variation there between those things. So. How many of you know the name Jim Valvano? Oh, all three of you, good. <laughs> Jim Valvano was the coach of the North Carolina State University basketball team that unexpectedly won the NCAA basketball championship in 1983 in an upset victory over heavily favored UNLV. Ten years later, his body riddled with cancerous tumors. He gave his famous speech at the ESPY Awards in which he announced the beginning of the Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer Research, whose seven-word motto has also become somewhat famous, don't give up, don't ever give up. In that speech, which I encourage you to Google, because it's very inspirational, in that speech, Coach Valvano said that there are three things all of us should do every day. We should laugh, we should think, and we should cry. Every day we should find some reason for joy and laughter. Every day we should spend time in thought, and every day we should have our emotions move to tears. I've always thought that this is a good strategy for a sermon. In the past when I've preached, I've often incorporated these three things into my sermons with hopefully the heaviest emphasis being on thinking. Nonetheless, I try to find an opportunity to laugh, and many of you know that I rarely get through a sermon without crying myself. So let's start with a little laughter. There are many things around us every day that can give us cause to laugh if we just notice them, and I try to find the humor in life anywhere I can because life is tough enough. So for instance, have you ever noticed the humor in the adjectives applied to shampoo. There are three bottles of shampoo sitting in my shower today. One of them is labeled pro-vitamin shampoo. Okay, this makes me feel good since I know that vitamins are good for me and I'd hate for my shampoo to be anti-vitamin. As a Christian, I'm also hopeful my shampoo is pro-life and pro-family, but... <laughs> The second bottle of shampoo says it's daily clarifying. All right, I know what to clarify is. To clarify is to make something clear. Now, I don't know why my hair needs to be clear, but just so you're aware, whenever I have to preach, I always use clarifying shampoo the week before, just in case the passage is really difficult to understand. Maybe my shampoo can give the Holy Spirit some help. <laughs> uh, I must confess that I've given up on volumizing shampoo. <laughs> Volume means the amount of space my hair takes up, and that one is no longer in my shower. And I never really understood the third one that's in our shower. It says moisturizing or hydrating shampoo. Again, I ask myself, what does hydrate mean? It means to add water to. So why would I need to have shampoo that does that when I'm standing under a stream of water applying it? Okay. All right, I'm sorry. 
Enough of the silliness. We've gotten the laughter behind us. Now let's, let's get on to the thinking and the crying. I'd like to begin the serious portion of today's sermon thinking of the context of Acts chapter 26. If you've been following along, we are up to the 26th chapter of Acts, only two more to go in our Acts series. So I'd like to start today by thinking about the context and of Acts 26, and let me say in that regard a thank you to the men who have already preached this summer, Andrew, Seske, uh, Eric, Daniel, if I've forgotten anyone, please forgive me. Uh, you guys set up chapter 26 with your wonderful messages. In chapter 21, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem because some of the Jews from out of town stirred up the Jews in Jerusalem to accuse him of teaching against our people and against the law and defiling the temple. In, Rome, in chapter 21, the people try to kill Paul, but he is saved by the arrival of Roman soldiers and taken into their custody. They have no idea why they're arresting him, and they seem to believe that he's an Egyptian who had previously led a result, re, revolt in the desert. As Andrew pointed out in his sermon, Paul will never again be a free man, but will remain in custody of some kind for the rest of his life. Chapter 22 begins with Paul given permission to make a defense before the crowd, a defense that sounds a lot like what we're going to see today in Acts 26. After recalling his Damascus Road experience, the people interrupt Paul's defense with shouts and he's taken into the Roman barracks. The centurion and tribune, they don't know why Paul's been arrested, but when they find out he's a Roman citizen, they call a meeting before the chief priests and the ruling council and try to find out why this man is so hated by the Jews. In chapter 23, Paul makes his defense again, claiming that he's on trial because of, now this is very important, his hope and the resurrection of the dead. These words immediately fan into flame the ever, the ever running argument between the Pharisees and Sadducees concerning belief in the resurrection and his second defense is short-lived. Paul's again taken to the barracks for fear of his life. It's at this time that the Lord speaks to Paul and tells him to take courage because he is going to testify in Rome. Now God's promise to Paul immediately begins to be fulfilled as a plot to kill Paul's life causes the Roman tribune to send Paul to Caesarea, a town about 50 miles northwest of Jerusalem on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Felix, the governor of Judea, lives in Caesarea. And in chapter 24, Paul makes his defense before Felix. His accusers had already laid out their case, calling Paul a plague and a man who started riots around the world. It seems to be at this point that they're overstating Paul's influence at this juncture. But Paul again defends himself by saying that he believes the Old Testament and has, listen, a hope in God that there will be a resurrection. Paul concludes his defense by telling Felix that it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. During the next two years, Felix would converse with Paul often, partly 
it seems, out of curiosity and partly to give Paul many opportunities to offer him a bribe. After two years, Felix is succeeded by Festus. And in chapter 25 that Sesky preached from last week, Festus travels to Jerusalem and the chief priests present their case against Paul to him. After returning to Caesarea, Festus hears Paul's defense. Paul repeats the claim that he's done nothing wrong. He resists Festus' suggestion to go back to Jerusalem and Paul makes his appeal to go to Caesar. Chapter 25 ends by telling us that Agrippa, short for Herod Agrippa II, king of Judea, visits Caesarea. Festus gives him the report on Paul, telling Agrippa that the charges against Paul stem from some religious disputes. Agrippa expresses his desire to hear Paul himself, and Festus arranges for Paul to appear before Agrippa. Now, the reason we're told that Festus agreed to hear Paul again is because Festus has to write a letter accompanying Paul to Rome. And after all this time, he still doesn't know what to write about Paul. And he thinks Agrippa, who has a good understanding of what's gone on in Judea, might help him know, what do I write about Paul when I send my prisoner on to Rome? Now in chapter 27, the promise God makes to, or made to Paul is going to come to pass, but before Paul steps on a boat bound for Rome, God has one more task for Paul to perform. Paul will preach the gospel to Festus and Agrippa, the Roman governor of Judea and the king of northern Israel. So let's look at chapter 26 now, and I'd like to begin by looking at verses 1 through 11. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues 
and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul begins his defense uh, with some kind words for Agrippa, acknowledging the fact that Agrippa was familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. But then he gets back to, I hope you heard it, a familiar theme. Paul says, I'm on trial because of the hope I have. And the hope I have is because of the resurrection. He tells Agrippa that even his accusers will testify that he's lived like a Pharisee, which of course means he has a tremendous knowledge and respect for the Old Testament law and had done his best to keep the law in his daily living. Paul then uses a word that may surprise many to describe the Jews of the Old Testament. That word is hope. Paul claims that he stands on trial because of his hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. For this hope I am accused by the Jews. What's this hope that Paul keeps speaking about? In the Old Testament, the Jews had placed their hope in the promises God made to Abraham. And God kept those promises. He made them a great nation. He saved them from slavery in Egypt. And he brought them to the promised land. Now, many, many centuries later, God had sent both the northern and southern kingdoms into exile because of their sin. And the Jews of that day were again looking for deliverance. They were looking for a Messiah to deliver them from the Romans. Paul playing that one-string guitar that Eric keeps referring to in his sermons sought to proclaim that hope is now to be found in Jesus. And the proof of this fact is in his resurrection from the dead. So let's look at verse 12 now through verse 23. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when, he had, and when, he had all, or when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul's hope was in the resurrected Jesus because it was the resurrected Jesus that appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and changed his life. So Paul defends himself by describing his conversion. A scene recorded in narrative form in Acts 9 and recounted by Paul before the Jews in Jerusalem, before the angry mob in Acts 22, and here again in chapter 26 before Festus and Agrippa. Paul had already spoken of his life as a Pharisee and how his devotion to the law had caused him to oppose the name of Jesus and persecute his followers both in Jerusalem and in foreign cities. And it was on one of his trips to one of these foreign cities that Jesus appeared to Paul. Paul testifies to Agrippa and Festus of the work that Christ did in his life on that Damascus road. In modern day language, he gives his testimony before Festus and Agrippa. Never underestimate the power of sharing your testimony with other people. No one will be impressed by our words describing what Jesus can do for them if we cannot articulate what Jesus has already done for us. When we testify as to how Jesus has saved us, we can then give hope to others that Jesus can save them too. So let me take this opportunity to share with you what Jesus has done for me. Eric often speaks of the love of Jesus shown to him when he was in the depths of addiction and sin. My testimony is really just the opposite. Born into a Christian home, I was familiar with Jesus from day one. I learned all the Bible stories in Sunday school. I won awards for Bible memory and vacation Bible school. I was on the honor roll every marking period at Lehigh Christian Academy. Almost everyone would have described me as a good boy. In my teen years, I was not rebellious, and I was in church with my family Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night at prayer meeting, thanks to the faithfulness of my mom and dad. But like many young people, in this situation and with this background, there was an internal struggle going on, a soul wrestling with the question, is this my faith or is this just the faith of my family? My mom, who's here today to hear me speak, was a faithful testimony to me of Jesus' love. One thing she was really good at was volunteering me for things. <laughs> and one day she informed me that there was someone at a rest home that she wanted me to meet. His name was Jerry, and he needed someone to read the Bible to him. And you guessed it, she volunteered me. Even though I was a teenager, I didn't want to disappoint my mom, so I agreed to go. When I arrived at the rest home, 
I introduced myself to Jerry and asked him what he wanted to read from the Bible. See, Jerry couldn't read the Bible for himself because he couldn't pick up a Bible. Jerry had cerebral palsy and his hands were bent back along his wrists, making them basically useless. He was in a wheelchair and he was a bit hard to understand at first, but I found out that he liked Psalm 23 and I read that for him. Like many people in Jerry's situation, he was not just interested in hearing the Bible. He was lonely and he needed a friend. He enjoyed it when I talked with him, joked with him and made him laugh. On one of my first visits to see Jerry, after I had finished reading, and we were talking together, Jerry looked me in the eye and he asked me this question. Why did God make me like this? It was at this time in my life that I believe God was most gracious to me. Well, I believe Satan wanted to use that question to drive a wedge between me and God. To say, yeah, God, why would you do such a terrible thing? God in his grace would not allow it. God helped me to see that the most important question I needed to answer was not, why would God allow someone to be born with cerebral palsy like Jerry? The question I needed to answer was this one. Why did God allow me to be born whole? Why was I able to get A's in school with minimal effort? Why was I coordinated enough to be one of the better players on the athletic field? Why was I born into a loving family that would teach me about Jesus from the day I was born? Why was God so good to me? It was at this time that God led me to 1 Corinthians 4, 7, which in the NIV says, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? God helped me to see that all that I had going for me in my life, it was all a gift from him. It was all because of his grace. And in the tough questions of life, I needed to trust his goodness and his wise sovereign choices. In, retros in retrospect, for any of you who know me well, it is beyond ironic that God's grace would come to my life in the form of a question from a disabled man. There's much more I could tell you, but the time is short and Acts 26 needs more discussion. So I'll end this point by asking you, how has God been gracious to you? What circumstances in your life did he use to draw you to himself? Sharing these moments with fellow believers can be a tremendous encouragement to them. And sharing these moments with unbelievers can be a powerful tool to call them to Christ.
Now, Paul here in Acts 26 doesn't just give his testimony before Festus and Agrippa. He shares a lot more than that. In John chapter 9, the Pharisees are hounding a man that was born blind and was given his sight by Jesus. They were peppering him with questions about Jesus and the blind man responds in frustration that he doesn't have any of the answers to their questions. All he knows is once he was blind and now he can see because of Jesus. It's good to share Christ's saving work with others, but we should study the Bible so that we know more than that. These verses do not just give us Paul's testimony as to his conversion. They list many of the benefits that come to the Christian when Christ saves us. A number of these are found in verse 18. Look at that verse and let me go down a list for you of many other benefits that we have as Christians when God saves us. In verse 18, it says that God would open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When God comes to us in his grace and he saves us, it says here that a Christian is someone who has come from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of to, to God. Both of these phrases imply man's depravity without Christ. In Ephesians 2, Paul calls us dead in our transgressions and sins. The phrases here in Acts 26 verse 18 remind us that apart from Christ, we are in the dark. We are lost. We are spiritually blind with no hope of ever seeing. Not only that, but we are slaves to the prince of darkness. You know, we thought of ourselves as free and autonomous, yet all the while we were under the power of Satan doing his will and bidding. But when Christ saves us, he brings us into the light. He gives us true freedom. He breaks the power of Satan over us, and he brings us back into fellowship with God. Secondly, here, one of the other benefits is when Christ saves us, he forgives us our sins. As Christians, we so often take that just for granted. One of the greatest experiences in this life is to know the joy of being forgiven by someone we have sinned against and wronged. Real forgiveness is far too rare, but its joys are amazing. Jesus forgives us of our many offenses against God. And the longer we're Christians, the more we understand just how many offenses God forgave. John Newton was a slave trader who was saved by God and is best known for being the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. He was a pastor for many years and he knew a great deal of theology, but as he got older, he liked to tell people that there are two things he knew for sure. He was a great sinner and Christ was a great savior. Hallelujah. One of the great paradoxes of the Christian life is that the more we grow in our knowledge of ourselves and in, uh, and in our knowledge of God and his holiness, the more we realize what a great sinner we are and the more familiar we become with just how dark our hearts are in reality. 
Yet this knowledge does not overwhelm us because it's accompanied by an increased knowledge of just how great a savior Jesus really is. Thirdly, when Christ saves us, he brings us into a family whose ultimate reunion will be in heaven. Paul says that he gives us a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now this is a description of fellow Christians. God does not call us to a personal faith in Jesus devoid of community, but he brings us into a family, giving us brothers and sisters in Christ to help us in our walk with him. Our sanctification is a process that will continue to our death or until Jesus comes again, and it's a process best accompanied by the help of others. We are not alone in our struggle with remaining sin. We need fellow Christians. We need what we call the church. The final culmination of this type of community will be heaven, where we will join with all of God's people who have finished their earthly race, and now together with them be God's family and glory. At this point, we will be free from all sin and focused on worshiping God for all eternity, together with all the saints in glory. My fourth point about what we have in Christ other than just salvation is found in verse 20. Paul emphasized the need for all who hear the gospel message to repent in verse 20. To repent is to turn from sin to God. It's a part of our response to hearing the good news of the gospel. Faith and repentance are often described as two sides of the same coin. Faith is described in Ephesians 2 as a gift from God. Here in Acts, a positive response to the, to the gospel has been called God granting the gift of repentance, especially to the Gentiles. In our Christian lives, repentance and faith continue to be part of our daily experience. We live by faith, not by sight. And we continue to repent of the sins that we still commit even as Christians. And finally, Paul exhorts those who have repented in verse 20 to exhibit good works as a proof of their repentance. Remember that scripture never tells us to work for our salvation because we can never be good enough to earn entrance into heaven. The scriptures tell us to put our faith in the work of Jesus. It also tells us that when we believe in Christ, God prepares good works for us to do. These good works do not save us, but these good works testify to the presence of real genuine saving faith in our lives. James reminds us that though we are saved by faith alone, true faith that saves is never alone, but is always accompanied by good works. Paul finishes his words to Festus and Agrippa by telling them that all these benefits come to those who believe in Jesus, but they are only possible because Jesus is the promised Messiah, the hope of Israel, the fulfillment of all, all Old Testament prophecy. 
It's because Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, suffered at the hands of sinful men, died on a Roman cross, and rose again three days later, that any of us can be saved from our sins and experience the many blessings of being reconciled to God and made a part of his family. All of our hope is in Jesus and his resurrection. So I want to finish our look at chapter 26 by looking at the reaction to Paul's testimony, starting in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might be such as I am, except for these chains. Now Paul was a gifted man and he had finished an amazing defense which clearly proclaimed the good news of the gospel of Jesus. He has expertly declared the person and work of Christ. Yet in spite of this, Festus and Agrippa are examples of the two most common reactions among men when they hear the gospel proclaimed. Festus actually interrupts Paul, thereby ending Paul's defense by shouting to Paul that he's lost his mind. In essence, he says, Paul, you're crazy. Paul in a later epistle will tell us that the message of the gospel is foolishness to the natural man and Festus is exhibit A in proving this true. I believe what Paul says next is very important though for us to hear. Paul calmly and confidently replies to Festus by telling him that despite his loud protests, the gospel of Jesus Christ is both true and rational. Listen carefully. We abandon neither truth nor reason when we believe the biblical message of salvation through Jesus. Agrippa's reaction is not nearly as extreme. He says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He's in essence saying, Paul, I'll think about it. Now, while Agrippa's response is much more civil, it's still a rejection of the gospel message. It's more polite, but he still ends up in the category, thanks Paul, but no thanks. Paul's response to, Paul responds to Agrippa by telling him that persuading him to be a Christian is exactly what he desires to do. Festus also. And at this point, we must give one last nod to God's sovereignty by noting that no matter how well we present the gospel message to an unbeliever, 
they will remain an unbeliever unless God the Father sends God the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of the spiritually blind to the beauty of Jesus, God the Son. Salvation is a work of the Trinity, and it's their work alone. God gives us the great privilege of sharing in his salvation work by giving us the task of sowing seeds, but only he can bring a harvest of souls, and we must trust him to do his work. He has promised that his word, when proclaimed, will not return to him void, which gives us hope that when we share the gospel, we may just be sharing the very words God will use to grant new life to the one who hears. May we be faithful like Paul to proclaim the message of the gospel, and may God give us grace to trust him for a harvest that only he can give. So in closing, I'd like to ask you these application questions. Do you live as one who has a living hope in Jesus? You know, it wasn't just Paul who emphasized these hope and a resurrection, but Peter starts his epistle in 1 Peter 1.3 with these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You and I should be those who live as, with ones, as those who believe in hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. Do you recognize the power of your conversion story? Be ready to share with others what God has done for you. Your story is a powerful example of a gracious God ready to save. Do you know the scriptures well enough to explain the work of Christ and the benefits you have received because of his saving work? Be ready to share much more than your testimony. Study the Bible so you can share more. And remember, you don't have to be able to answer every question, but you should be able to explain to others the tremendous benefits of being a Christian. And lastly, are you ready to faithfully proclaim Christ whether or not your words are well received? Sharing the gospel can sometimes feel like you're building a fire in the rain. We need to patiently persevere. God will grant harvest in his time. In the, next two few, in the next few weeks, we'll be finishing our series in Acts by looking at chapters 27 and 28. And when we next pick up the story, Paul is on his way to Rome, for God is faithful to all his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful. We're thankful to you especially for your work in our lives, for coming to each one of us, just like you came to Paul on the Damascus Road, and showing us grace in whatever situation we were in, whether we were deep in our sin or trusting in our own righteousness. Lord, for each one of us here this morning who's a Christian, you came to us and saved us, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the many, many 
blessings of being a Christian. Thank you that you brought us from darkness to light, from Satan's power to your great freedom. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins, for the family of God that we share. Thank you for giving us the gift of repentance. And I thank you that through Jesus we have hope and a resurrection. Help us, help us to be faithful in proclaiming to others what you have done in our lives. And thank you for Paul's example here in Acts 26. We thank you in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior, who gives us hope. Amen.